Hello, SCORE fans, which sounds a little bit like I'm saying hello, sports fans, but far more to the point. Hello, SCORE, the podcast fans. We are back with a special episode for all of you summertime moviegoers and movie listeners. Uh, I had the great pleasure of speaking with Daniel Pemberton, who just scored the amazing Across the Spider-Verse, which is... So worth seeing in a theater. Can I get some props? A little applause for in a theater because seeing a movie in a theater is really remarkable. I was reminded. And Daniel's music is kind of next gen, as you will hear. It's just, he says, it's postmodern in this discussion we have. It's everything. And, um, of course, Metro Boomin puts in a couple songs that are kind of off the charts, or now, as they would say, on the charts. But uh, I hope you'll stick with us. Uh, enjoy my conversation with Daniel Pemberton, and lots of exciting things coming up behind this one. But for now, sit forward, don't relax, and groove on a new episode of score the podcast daniel i must say i've spent the last i would say three or four days listening to every interview and thought you know what i'm going to do i'm going to ask him the exact same questions so he can (laughs) default to well it's funny what i took away was but i thought no i'm going to have a real nice conversation with daniel daniel we haven't spoken for I mean, we've spoken, but the last podcast we did, I looked it up, June 17th, 2020, which is almost exactly three years ago this week. I mean, literally three years in a week. And uh, I I remember very distinctly something that happened during that podcast, which is kind of a signature marker of the time we were in. We paused while you banged a pan outside oh, your yeah. window. For the COVID, uh, for the NHS workers, who got completely stitched up by our government. What a surprise. <laughs> and I think all London at that moment, it was in sort of, you know, the first spring of COVID would come out. We heard it. It's on the podcast. I listened. They were all banging on their front stoops. Yeah. Yeah, and, it was... And- it, 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 it was, it, you know, it was kind of quite a powerful moment. But again, it was very disappointingly um, presentational by our current completely useless government, who has no interest in actually protecting the health service, but rather selling it off to private industry. But hey, that's probably for a different podcast. Uh, it might be this podcast. <laughs> I mean, I having just returned from Cuba, I'm sort of trying to figure out what is there a system that actually works for people? And that might be a different podcast, but I'm thinking that, let's see, capitalism kind of has some issues. Uh, communism seems to not have had a good weekend over there. And socialism, well, Havana, we can leave that for another podcast. It, which brings me to Trial of the Chicago 7, when people, you actually wrote the music for seven humans who were 
desperately trying to change things. And I, I thought about it this weekend. I thought about it because Aaron Sorkin, your director, I know you did two pictures with him. And uh, I wondered. Three. I've done three. Oh, I didn't. I know Molly's Game and Trial. And Being the Ricardos. Oh, God. Absolutely. Being the Ricardos. It's funny because I saw it and I saw it. It's so interesting. I was really attracted to that one because of my experience with Mambo Kings, another story. But I wondered if Aaron was particularly musical because he just did Camelot on Broadway. Yeah, I mean, Aaron's like, as a director, he's very he's, he's very good to work with because he's very uh, sort of collaborative and respectful of your input on a film. And so some films, like Chicago 7 was interesting because with Chicago 7, when we did that, right from the beginning, he was like, I only want four bits of score in this movie. And these are the four moments. And it was like the opening, the first riot, the second riot, and the ending. And he'd already worked out as a director that he wanted to try and keep those bits incredibly powerful musically. And, and the rest of it was going to have no score. And then I think as the movie went on, we worked out we could probably like actually just do some very minimal scoring around the other bits. Um, but I love the fact that, you know, he writes the scripts. The scripts are so solid when you get them that, you know, you do some movies where everything changes all the time. Like I've definitely been on movies where the, the script at the beginning is almost not worth reading because you know that one at the end is going to be completely different. And But with Aaron's, it's, it's like... Like the Trial of Chicago Seven, with the exception of one scene which they just they'd run out of time and I think budget to do, it's pretty much exactly everything that was on the page from uh, the very first draft I read, and I think that's because as a director he spends a long time as a writer and a director he can spend a long time really thinking about it, and and with that he had already figured out how to use music. Where some other films like when I did Molly's Game with him. His, you know, that was my first sort of film with him as a director. And he sort of said to me, I, I, I want an orchestral score for this. And I just said to him, I don't think that's the right call. I think you want a kind of contemporary electronic type of score. And so I was like, I'm just going to do that. And if you don't like it, I'll do an orchestral score. But let me do this first. And I think he enjoyed me pushing back a bit with the caveat that if it was rubbish, I'd start again. And it worked out great. And I think now we've done three films we've built quite a good level of trust between each other. There's so much in what you say. I mean, I just, I could have this conversation for a long time because you've just touched on so many great things about the relationship between a director and a composer and how you build that and your bravery in some ways saying, thanks for your suggestion. I think it's this and having a director actually say, okay, try it. And you, I assume you were right, because... Um, yeah, but it doesn't mean I always there. am right. Yeah, because well, it's okay, but you that's... wanted to, you know, you had an instinct. You had an instinct to try something. How many pieces of score ended up in trial in Chicago City? Uh, you said that he had four ideas. Do you think he ended up with 20 cues? Yeah, it's probably about 20, 25 overall. There's four really big cues, and then, of course, there's a song at the end as well, which is a really big part of that film, yeah. of t turning the song into, like, a central like sort of release for the end of the film yeah. um 
but you know, you have these four big moments and some more like what I wanted to do with the other moments is make them very understated. So you didn't really notice them. And the bits when you did notice the score would be at these four key moments, opening right, right to ending. It's fabulous. And it's so interesting that he had those ideas and you're very kind because I'm allergic to directors telling the composer what to do. I had to sit through so many of those conversations where I wanted to say to the director and never did, of course, would you let him fucking do his job? He knows what to do. Let him I mean, do it. But you can't so say I, that. I mean, there are moments, like, again, it always depends where it's coming from. Like, I've done films, like, obviously, it's not f fun to get notes, really. But it's also, <laughs> sometimes notes are good. And sometimes, you know, you know, yeah. if you look at, like, Aaron, he's got a vision of this film that is his vision. He spent 10 years thinking about, or, you know, maybe mm -hmm. longer or less. And you've got to respect his or hers or whoever's making the film's approach to how they want to do the film. And sometimes you score a scene, you're like, this is so great. And then they might say, but yeah, we need to look at it from this perspective. And it can be frustrating, but it can be right. And, so, and it can make the film better sometimes. And if I think something doesn't make the film better, I will push back hard on it. Because for me, it's always about what is going to make the best film at the end of the day. I'll always listen to directors' notes because, like, often they can be quite good. It's it's you're, when it's you're someone very kind, and less... you're absolutely you're you're absolutely right. And it's also the mark of a great composer that you're open to the collaboration. And it's also the mark of any great relationship where you trust each other. And you remind me, you know, of course, the great Maestro Zimmer would get a note, and I'd sit there and want to strangle whoever had just given it to him to say, you're kidding. That was an amazing piece of music. And Hans would say, tell me what's not working for you. You know, and, he'd, and it, of course it'd be Ridley or it'd be Nolan, and they'd have a really, you know, right there where the guy jumps out. It feels, you know, sympathetic. And I, I, I'm not sure. And you think, wow, that I never thought of that. So... Of course, when it's a great director and you respect them, it was the guys that always said, listen, I know what I'm doing. I played bass in my high school band. I understand music. Those were troublesome for me. I have to tell you that um, I know I'm fabulously interested in Spider-Man, as everyone is, in Spider-Verse, but I just want to give a shout-out to Slow Horses, which I consumed every episode and just dug the shit out of and thought it was so cool that also in addition to the fabulous song you had for chicago seven the slow horses song is not to be sneezed at either and your collaborator but i just love the series and the work you did i dug it yeah th thanks yeah i mean we're just doing the third season of slow horses now i can't uh, wait yeah no it's good it's a fun it's a fun show and uh, I always, the fact I got to do that song with Mick Jagger is one of the most surreal, the cool experiences of my life. I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times. I'm curious. Did you get, were you in a room kind of noodling to make a song or was it just emails uh, and files? No, it was, e it was emails, texts, uh, voice memos, lots of phone calls. And he's really nice. We had lots of phone calls, chats. I've got his number. We text and chat on the phone sometimes, which is, very surreal. 
Um, but he actually came down to one of the Spider-Verse sessions. He was, he was at Abbey Road doing uh, a playback of the Stones' new album. And so he popped in. Uh, it was very good timing because we were doing a brass pickup session. And I was like, I can probably pause this for like 15 minutes and not, not stress out. So, because I, when I run a session, I run very tight sessions. I'm very, as a former executive in the uh, studio department, you'll appreciate composers who understand budgets. And so I, I, I always really. That. I'd like to I thank you in re- advance. Yeah, yeah. I always really try and work out how I can get the most out of every session and, you know, working, you know, like, I, I, like I'm quite good at time management. And so normally every second is like unbelievably vital. And but we took a break and the conductor was like, why are we taking a break? We're 40 minutes into this session. And I'm like, uh, I'll explain to you later. We're taking a break. And then uh, about just at the end of the break, we started five minutes late and uh, everyone's sitting around. And I'm like, OK, I suppose I better tell you why we're late. And I brought I brought um, Mick into the, uh, the session. Oh, so everyone, ladies and gentlemen, uh, so Mick Jagger. And uh, yeah, that's so the, cool. Did you go into the cafe downstairs or did you just chill in the control room or where? Oh, no, he just came into the control room. I mean, when we did Spider-Verse, we had a variety. Tom York as well from Radiohead. He came up to uh, hear some mixes because he was doing some stuff with The Smile. And I sort of did some stuff with Tom on Motherless Brooklyn with Edward Norton. Um, And so it was kind of like in terms of, in in terms of like, um, you know, celeb, hangouts uh, on a score spider verse is probably the highest you know we've got mick jagger and tom york there's some quite good uh people checking out the score it also i'm going to um wager that in the future both of them when thinking of you know i have this film project there was you know daniel sort of feels like a cool vibe and they're going to call you. Although I wonder if Tom calls Johnny Greenwood or maybe he never calls him to do something like that. But, um, well, Tom scores gonna... movies as well. Tom, I mean, Tom's done Suspiria. I mean, Tom's that's like, right. Tom, he did. Tom and Johnny are ridiculously talented. And when they were doing the smile album, like, you know, they were, they had a real vibe going on. Abbey Road. They were painting. They had, uh, their, their artist who Stanley was painting. Which while room? They, while they, recorded this is in abbey two in the lounge of abbey two they'd set up a painting <laughs> studio in there and they were like just jamming stuff out left right and center and and i think the thing that's interesting about them is they are real artists who really care about the music and pushing the boundaries and being great performers i mean they are really talented musicians i am not a really talented musician and, what's really um, interesting is that last sentence you just said you're not because the spider verse score both, but particularly the one I just have spent time with, I would put you in the category of a musician who cares deeply about every single, I would even break it down. It's not even eighth note. It's it's 32nd note and the shape of it and the placement of it. I am, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read you a quote of yours, which I thought summed it up. I, I, Okay. Okay. Listen, one of your interviews, you said it's postmodern film music, 
that comes through a filter of the last hundred years of culture in the same way with the artwork. If you look at traditional film music, those traditionals are grand classical pieces. I've grown up surrounded by hip-hop, techno, rock, classical, jazz, experimental music, avant-garde music, and those influences are in the score. I love that, and I heard that, and you kind of explained it to me because listening to the score and watching the film prior to reading that, I kind of had this moment of, what do I call this music? I, I don't know because it just went from this kind of crunchy techno to a kind of an 80s pop vibe to this is kind of a beautiful Gwen ethereal I realized it was everything you were doing exactly what I was watching on screen which is painting with music and I'm really impressed Daniel I I I am really impressed I think you have defined oh, something I mean it's just beautiful and I can tell you that every time I listened to it and when I saw the film I was personally exhausted imagining how much work you did on this movie and how you found how did you find that ability to go that deep was it the filmmakers because you could have at about halfway through said I think that's good enough I mean trust me I'd have quite enjoyed saying that um, but uh, I think with this film, it is such a unique film. And I know as a composer, you've got to go with the movie. You know, you can't, you can't impose a, 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 a composing style or creative, creative style on a movie where it's going to uh, hurt the movie. And I think because this movie similar to the music, has all these influences, such a wide kaleidoscope of influences. It meant that I could pull on that, which was really uh, exciting for me. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't pull on that, let's say, for being the Ricardos with Sorkin. Beautiful movie, but I couldn't approach the music in that way. I'd have to, I, that was a lot more traditional orchestral approach. But with this, you know, what's exciting for me is I like writing music where you can't define what it is. You have when you upload things on Spotify, it has you have to fill in these boxes. Okay, what box does your music fit in? And I love the fact that most of the time I don't know what box to tip because none of it represents what I'm doing. And I think when you create arts, especially music that cannot be definable in a box, that's very exciting because as soon as you say film music, which is what I I would call this, I call it modern film music. You say film music, people think of big orchestras, da 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 da, big theme, brass and some strings. Whereas really, I think the thing I love about film music is it is one of the freest creative musical art forms that hasn't been uh, commodified in the same way so much other uh, music has. Because, you know, people often say to me, well, do you ever do something for yourself? You know, like I'm this <laughs> sort of hack who's selling his soul to evil corporations. Some element of truth to that, but not really. But there's a thing where it's like, well, I always try and do myself in all these films. And do you think oh, a band... I love that. Do you think there's a band who makes one song 
they're going to have to keep making the same type of music because they're not allowed to really express themselves um, in all these different forms of creativity because they have a brand. And if you go off that, record companies don't know what to do. The audience doesn't know what to do. The streaming services don't know how to present that. And, and because film music is almost invisible and sort of people don't, not say they don't care about it, but they don't really. And so it gives me loads of creative freedom because there's no other people telling me what to do. Whereas if I was in a band, there'd be a million record company executives and other people telling me I need to make it sound more like... And the bass like, player. Uh, yeah. And so I love the... Like for me, this score is really just modern film music and it's kind of everything I think film music can be today, which is uh, an influx of every musical art form and, and it's not just music, there's so many, there's other, you know, other art forms inspire me, uh, you know, paint. I've just been to an amazing exhibition, uh, Anderson Kiefer, and he's this mm. uh, artist who's, who, who creates amazing work. It's in the, the middle of it is just a smashed up concrete ruin, and it's so brutal and yeah. um, strong. And I'm just thinking, wow, how would I approach, how could I get that feeling from a piece of music and I look at it and I'm like, well, this palette is very uh, gray and it's very limited. And that's, you know, if I was scoring it, I would, I would probably do something that was actually no way have the, the musical color palette of Spider-Verse. I absolutely love that. I'm going to quote a lot of what you said. I have two thoughts. One is in reverse. You remind me that once I was at Abbey road with, maestro elfman and we decided yeah. to cancel an afternoon session and go to a francis bacon show together at the tate and he oh, said that we've for years said not only was the show unbelievable it was truly it was a you know kind of a legendary reveal of it the breadth of, it, of bacon's career but elfman said that it changed the way he was going to do the next day's session. And yeah, I mean, of course, of course you understand artists and you, and you of all kinds. I mean, who, we all do, whether it's I, reading a book. But Bacon's Please. interesting because like, I don't know if you've ever seen how Bacon's, what Bacon's studio looked like. Okay. Bacon, if you, if you sure. Google Francis Bacon's studio, it is like a shithole. It is crazy. It is like, paint it's like it's like a rubbish dump of paint and palettes and canvases and what i find interesting about it i remember looking at ages and going going holy crap that is so insane but my studio is not particularly tidy like, i i like you know this is my desk Let's look at my desk it's like it's a mess right my That's place perfect. is a mess and but what i what i've realized and what i now realize about francis bacon is he didn't want to tidy up because he was wanted to carry on making his work better and just work on his art. And I have the same thing. Everyone comes around my house and they're like, why didn't you get cleaner? And I'm like, well, I don't want anyone to interrupt me when I'm working. And if I'm tidying up, I could rather spend my time making my tracks a bit better or more interesting. So it just stays as a mess. And so I, I, I love felt that. some affinity with Francis Bacon, but 
my place is not as mentalist. Right? I mean, it's, it's not great. There's no way a Francis Bacon level. But Google it. It's, it's such a crazy image. I will. And if you're ever in L.A., my recommendation, if you can, is go see Diane Warren's studio where she writes those amazing songs because it's there's a DX7 is the only thing that you can maybe kind of navigate through to get to the magic DX7, which she still has. Yeah. But, I mean, she's moved a couple times, It's but that, that hit making room, you kind of went, huh, so this is where the magic happens? Um, it was surprising. Uh, you remind me, though, when you say you don't want someone to come in here to tidy up, you'd rather spend the time. There's a fundamental difference between your approach and that of Lord and Miller or the directors of Spider-Verse, which is they have a team and you created, they have a team for all the different styles. I mean, it's, it goes everywhere from, you know, if there'd be in Spider-Verse, of course, you saw this, those single frames would come out of kind of an image and you think, oh, that took time to do that. Somebody had to actually just pop a single frame of an image and then boom, we're back to the action. You do all the various facets yourself, you imagine it. And I think it's quite remarkable that in your head are all those different musics. You know, it's it's easy to say, yeah, it's all, everything I've learned. I've heard all that music that you just mentioned, techno, classical, jazz, experimental. I'm not sure I would have the ability to reach into a paint box and pull out the one I need authentically and create with it. And I, I'm kind of amazed that you can so effortlessly, it looks like fluidly. I, yeah, it's probably a lifetime of like, I, you know, I grew up working in British TV and you know, one of the first things I did, mm. one of my, like the first jobs I got, uh, I'd done a few documentaries that were very slow, low, low, budget documentaries and then the director this guy called paul wilmshurst who gave me my very first job when i was 17 he said i'm doing a documentary about elvis presley can you write some elvis presley kind of stuff and i'm like oh yeah sure i can do that and i was like i got no idea how to do this so i was suddenly like right i'm gonna listen to loads of records and try and pull apart how to make this kind of music so i did that and i did it not particularly well but i did it okay and and, and then I realized I could just keep doing that. And as a result, I kind of had this like foundation through slightly blagging it and pretending I could do things <laughs> that I couldn't. And then just learning very quickly. I did that all through TV. I tried to learn how to, you know, write stuff for jazz, how to write for strings, you know, how to program crazy electronic stuff. And I kind of used every job as a, like a, a, a way to learn something I, I still do that in films every film i do you know like i did this film amsterdam uh last you know uh sort of last year beginning of this yep. year and and with that i you know i just wanted to write for woodwinds and i've always wanted to write a score just for woodwinds and i was like okay finally i get a chance to do that how's that going to work what can i do within woodwinds that's within that limitation you know and that's really interesting when you find things you're like wow country bassoon actually sounds fucking awesome and it's got like a weight where the bassoon can be a bit kind of comedy. The contra bassoon is really serious. Um, yeah, John Williams uses it for scary shit sometimes. 
Yeah, it's um, sounds. It's sort of amazing because you've also articulated what makes a film composer, and you said it earlier that it's not a band who's going to play the same thing. It's somebody who's going to create the sound of a movie with whatever resources, and it's just how wide your palette is and how curious you are. People would come to me always and say, can you listen to something? I think it sounds like movie music, and I always wanted to say, I don't know what that means because I've worked on movies where it was a polka and i've worked on movies where you know sasha baron cohen would want the sound of a kazakhstan uh banjo player that he'd heard on a record and can we duplicate that and it would be or be orchestral so movie music is everything to me and uh it's funny you mentioned amsterdam i actually was with christia tapia Christian Tapia Devere. And I oh, think yes. he had spoken to you just as you'd spoke as you'd finished Amsterdam. And we had a conversation about something he'd been asked to do. And he said, It's interesting. I just had a conversation with Daniel Pemberton about doing Amsterdam and it's affecting the way I'm thinking about my next film. And I thought that's really great. That's really good. Well, it to might hear. have been. It might have been like, be careful what kind of you know big studio shit shows you get involved with. I think it's exactly what we talked about because he'd been offered a big film, then he was now, uh, and I think that's a really hard thing for a composer. It's a hard thing for an actor. You're offered a big film and it looks and sounds great, and how could this possibly go wrong? And uh, you know, welcome to it. It was one of the benefits for for me of going from being a musician and to being a studio exec is that I saw that behind the curtain of this is all going to be great. I'm so excited to be the composer on something or the songwriter. And then you get into these situations where really it's this dysfunctional. They're, they, nobody likes each other. Uh, how are we going to even get to the dub stage if they're not talking? Yeah, you don't know that I happens. Mean, I mean, the thing with Christopher that's interesting is, you know, he is a really, really fantastic composer and talent. And, correct, you know, you, you can look, and it's interesting because I've been, you know, I've known him for years and I've been a big fan and sort of of his for a very long time. And what was interesting is watching how after White Lotus, everyone's like, hey, we've discovered this new talent. And like, no, he's been around for ages. He's done great, like Utopia, National Treasure. Uh, he's done some amazing scores. Well, every score he does is pretty amazing. Amazing. And girls with a gift, stuff like this. And it's it's funny how we still need the success of a project to recognise often the talent of the artist behind it. And I get it because it, people can't watch everything or they don't have common things to talk about. But, you know, I still think there's a thing with film, with the film music or the film industry where success is looked looked at through box office and success of a film and obviously spider-verse is doing great at the moment so that's great it's number it's, nice it's number do. one as we are having this conversation for its third week or fourth week yeah and that's lovely but most films i've done aren't number one and and there's loads of great scores out there which are not um you know doing that much of the box office and it, it, it's sort of interesting how the the sort of conversation, especially from a, a, a sort of 
studio level is always through the lens of success of a project. Of and course, I understand I would from their bring... point of view. Well, they, they don't, don't know, want to take though. the risks. Yeah. And it's, it's, yes, it's, it's defensible. What do you call that? Defensible deniability or, you know, plausible de deniability. Yeah. I yeah. You can't, up... you can't get fired for like putting Microsoft office on your computer. If everyone else has got Microsoft office. Even or, if it's you know, I, I think, uh, you know, Alan Silvestri should do this movie. Nobody's going to fire you if it didn't, if it goes pear shaped, cause it was Alan Silvestri, which it wouldn't. Yeah. But the opposite was always true. I'd bring in a composer that, fabulous total talent i've done other stuff they're great i've been they're amazing and some director or junior studio exec would say oh i hated that movie and i have to once again say yeah but the guys that was just a bad movie like it wasn't you know the composer was brought in and he, the fact that he did that darn cat you know, shouldn't he's Not a really good cat. great movie. Great <laughs> That's movie. Funny. I'll tell I'll tell Richard Gibb because I once was in <laughs> with a director who looked at his thing and saw that his very first film was that darn cat, and he locked oh, on. I don't know, not that guy. Who else do you have? I said this is his first movie, and he's great. I would. I turned down a movie early on. Like I like I think when you're starting out, it's very hard to turn things down. Uh, but there was a movie which I'm not going to give the title of because it would feel a bit unfair. But the, the title basically said, this movie is not a good movie. It was a terrible, schlocky title. Um, and it, it was one of those does what it says on the... It's almost like Snakes on the Plane kind of title. Right. And yeah. I was like, oh, it could be fun. And, but I was really waving. And my UK agent uh, said to me, look, one day Ridley Scott... At this, this point, I'd never had any interactions with Ridley Scott, but he just literally said as a random name out, what if Ridley Scott sees your IMDb and sees that on it? And I was like, yeah, you're right. And so I didn't do it. And weirdly, I did end up working with Ridley Scott. I mean, who knows you if sure I would have done that movie. The Counselor yeah. was a big one. And Danny Boyle. Uh, I mean, some really... And to your Cristobal point, after White Lotus, everybody's asking, who is this guy and do you know him? And and Cristobal did that thing that he does, which I absolutely adore, which is, you know, basically, if you'll forgive me, fuck off, you know. Yeah, he's very he's very good at telling people to fuck off. Like and I, and I really admire his skill at that. I'm I'm not as skilled at this him. It's it is a great skill and be outside Montreal. And we talked about he has some you know, he's gonna like move further out of Montreal. And, you know, did it, was I interested in this kind of how remote can he go? I loved that. And I would talk to Hollywood types who, do you know him? Yeah. Um, God, he's, he's difficult to reach, isn't he? And I think, yes, he is. And there's a reason why, because of you. I want to ask about a really important piece of music in the history of Western culture, which is called Ten Ragas to a Disco Beat. Oh, yeah. Just how did you find? I mean, you know, I've seen all the stuff about how that was an important and for that scene, but I just wondered: is that something that I should know? Because if I lived in the UK, everybody knew it, and it's like some obscure American track that everybody says, "Oh man, I love that." I mean, I'd never no, heard of it. How'd you know it? It's it's pretty obscure. Like I kind of grew up 
very much into sort of electronic ambient uh, music. And uh, there's a bunch of records that are quite important. Like, um, mm. you know, if you look at the uh, sort of history of dance music, there's things like there's a uh, album called E2, E4 by Manuel Gotching, I think. I can't pronounce it. You know, things like Terry Riley, Rainbow and Curve there. There's this sort of seminal psychedelic electronic sort of things that pave the way for things later. And you sort of pick them up as you go along. And I remember when I found out about Ten Lagers for Disco Beat, just reading about it and listening to it and being like, this is fucking crazy. This guy it is. had inadvertently, you know, and it's, it, it, Good it, sounds. It's, it's more, it's more like someone having the toys that some other people had and just doing something with them, like really interesting. And because that, you know, the, the sort of world of acid house kind of came out of Detroit and you think of electronic music out of Germany. And it, it was just someone, someone doing something similar, but just not being recognized at the time. And I always loved the way it had a bouncy feel, electronic feel, that was Indian, but not the Indian we're used to hearing in movies or how we sort mm. of perceive Indian music. And I wanted to play with some of the sort of more, um, you know, I want to play with that side of things. And I wanted to play with some of the tropes of Bollywood scoring where they have always like big, hot, muscular shouts, which I love. And like, I love the boldness of Bollywood stuff. Like it's Jai so- ho. Yeah, it's big. It's just, they go big, like, like a couple of my scores have been sort of popular in, in India and they've always been ones that are really, really bombastic and bold and sort of crazy. And they, they dig the craziness out there. And I, I love that. It's just that. a great sequence. Yeah, that side of things. I would definitely be up for playing more. There's certain worlds where you're like, oh, I could play more on that. That would be fun. One of my favorite instruments in that, which you don't even really hear that much in the score, is an instrument called a dad, I think it is. It's a, it's a drum. It's like a tiny drum about this high. It's like a mini, um, it looks like a barabuka, but really small. And we have this amazing Indian percussionist. And uh, and he's just bending it and changing the pitch. And made it look so easy. I'm like, I've got to give this a go. And he'd be like, dog, 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 dog. I have a go. It's like, dog, <laughs> just sounded absolutely right. I was like, this is easy. I should get one of these. I'm like, no, it's really hard. Um, and that's there's loads of cool little bits in there in the stems which no one will probably notice but those are the kind of sessions that I would stand by watch it take place and as you walked in I'd say you saved the movie you know because it was it's the kind of thing that not a lot of people will know but I'm now I'm glad and I will re-listen tell us before we go you're going on you are a rock band you're going on tour with Spider-Verse well, Spider-Verse is kind of going on tour without me. Like we did, Oh, you're not um, going to be conducting and taking bows at the end? I'm not doing 60 dates in America. That's for sure. I was going to say, um, how can you... I looked at that tour schedule, and I sent it to a lot yeah. of people, and thought, wow, well, first of all, you're in L.A., like November or something. I'm coming to that show. you got to come to L.A. you got to come out yeah, and take your bows come, here. I think... I think I'm going to come to L.A. Um, yeah, it's also it award season, and it will be very very important for you to be here to start warming up the voters yeah. but well we who will be we, we built that who's doing that so we've got this amazing female orchestra uh called the broadway huh? symphonetta um and we 
we did a show in Brooklyn, which was kind of an experiment to see if hmm. it worked. And it's very complicated to do Spidey live. I mean, I always thought we couldn't do it because it's got so much stuff in it. But what we've done is like some of it's tracked, some of it's live. And it's like there's live scratching. There's some, and, and, it, and I was like, is this going to work? I really didn't know whether it's going to be a total car crash and really painful. But it was surprisingly, I mean, it was really effective. People went crazy mm. for it. And all the promoters were like, ooh. Um, and so they, like, from what we've built, they're going to turn, they've turned into this show and they're taking it around um, uh, America. And it's a cool experience because for a lot of people, it might be the first time they see an orchestra. It might be the first time they see someone record scratching. It's probably the first time they've seen a, rec a record scratching and an orchestra at the same time. And what I like about it is is exposing these different worlds of culture, like hip hop and classical, you know, orchestral writing, to new audiences and uh, allowing them an understanding of like how what film music is. Because I think a lot of people, you know, they might be huge Spider Man fans and and things like that but they might not really understand everything that goes into a in, into a score and it's it's a really cool show and it's and just what will there be visuals film. will yes, will the there be a screen is, yeah so the whole oh, thing are they is playing the, the movie yeah so it's a playback of the movie with the live <sighs> uh stuff on top oh i thought it was and maybe just that's so not, ridiculous hands, yeah i'm not doing the hands in a live thing yet I think I need another 30 years. I think you need another 30 hits. minutes. You are so ready. I would come to see that. You on stage with, it'd be like different islands. There's the orchestral island. There's the electronic island. There's the scratching DJ island. Yeah. Daniel, um, it's really impressive. I, I was thinking this morning, I remember when and where we met. It was momentarily... And it's interesting if I could have frozen that moment. It was at, in Ghent at the World Soundtrack Awards, and you were either getting an award or giving one or sharing one. or And so you would probably be able to date it maybe seven years ago, five years ago, something like that. Maybe you were getting the best new composer or something. And uh, it was like, oh, hey, man, I, I saw whatever was one of your earliest films. And we met, and uh, I should have bought stock in you at that moment because I'd be extremely prescient about what was about to happen. Which well, is, you might not be that wealthy because really... I take as a, as, a, as a stock as a stock. I don't chase the big bucks movies, you know. I just chase the things that interest me. I turned down like a huge movie once just to do a documentary about disability because I thought it was more interesting. Oh, and that documentary, quite remarkable, and The Rescue, also quite remarkable, two documentaries. But I think it would have been cultural stock of just, I I picked this. But I, it's also a great joy just to see this work. And to listen to Spider-Verse was okay. We are, you know, I've seen over the last couple years pushing towards what I think you truly kind of expressed the width of i've seen that i mean of course you know over the last 20 years you've seen this kind of <laughs> here's electronics here's orchestra here's oh we're gonna use some found sounds all that's you know coming in and there's hilder 
recording doors closing and you know Hans. What, recording, on... wait, what, what did Helder record doors closing on? Because that is a big Chern... thing for me. Doors. Chernobyl. I've spent a long, I've spent a I'm... long time recording doors closing, much to the annoyance of one of my girlfriends once on ah, holiday. So funny. We, went, um, we went on holiday to Greece. We turn up is... to this place, this Airbnb thing. I open the door. I'm like, holy shit. That is the best squeak I've ever heard on the door. And I was like, I've got to record this. And I then spent 30 minutes opening and shutting the door. And she was not happy. It's good. I, that, I can tell you that. That's, uh, I, you, you are, I, just got, I think you've just entered the just got, pantheon of really great composers just doing that. I just got some great squeaks. And if you can hear this, probably you can hear this. I got some great squeaks in there. Can you hear a squeak there? I can. So I was in Paris last weekend. And in the in the Conservatoire Art a Metier Museum, and I got these squeaks. I don't know if you can hear them. This is off my iPhone. But look at that's some high level that's some high level squeaks. So I've got a lot of time it, for door. Those for door squeaks slams. have a little bit of a record scratch vibe, and so that could be kind of. Why? Do you know why? Kind of a, why? You know why? Because those squeaks are coming out of a gramophone horn. On a, it's basically those squeaks were part of a exhibit that was so you could hear what this piece of equipment did but it came on a long uh, like a long metal uh, tube into a horn and when you move the metal tube it created a really mad squeak sound so i just stood in this museum squeaking this fucking tube <laughs> metal thing trying not to attract any security guards because the whole place was like really empty and i of spent course. like 20 minutes hiding in the corner trying to like moves this thing backwards and forwards and hoping that no one came in and made any noise because then it ruins my squeaks. Just be a different kind of sample. Hilder yeah. on Chernobyl went with the okay. great sound engineer, Chris Adams, maybe. I can't remember his name. And they went to a an abandoned nuclear plant in Lithuania before she wrote any music. And she would... They, it's quite fabulous, and I've heard the pure sound before it got married to score, which is disguises what was happening because there's like a cello with it. But she would record yeah. these gates shutting and okay. em, in an empty nuclear factory, and then use them to build a score about you know a nuclear disaster. It was the first time. I think that someone had gone, it wasn't like, I have a cool idea, I'm going to bang on my the hood of my car and we're going to turn it into a bass drum. That, you know, had been done. This was, I'm going to make the score out of all of this sampled debris. And, I, and it's yeah, a I love, fabulous stuff. I love that and, I mean, we did some stuff on Spidey. The whistles you hear were recorded in a graveyard in Peckham in London that has a stone mausoleum. And again, I stuck my head through. I mean, if you, you know when you're in a certain space and you want to go echo, echo, or you want to make a whistle sound. If you can make a whistle, I always like, I've got to record the whistles because the reverb in stone is amazing. And because this was like a small mausoleum for like two coffins either side, it's maybe uh, three coffins, six in total, you could whistle in it. And the whistle would bounce 
around the stone because it was so enclosed, but such beautiful stone and it was curved. But it's a small space because stone spaces are often quite big. You don't get small stone spaces very often that are nice stone. And it just created this crazy whistle sound. So I was like, all right, I'll have that. So I sampled that all up, you know, uh, and that is the basis of the whistles you hear when we enter a, another universe near the end, which I don't want to talk too much about, not to spoil it, but something weird happens and you hear this mm. very odd whistling sound. And that's from a, a graveyard uh, in London. I think the, the riddle that we can leave our listeners with today is the question, did anyone whistle back in that graveyard? No. Okay. Because <laughs> that would have been really good to record, just a little bit of a out of one of the graves. Um, yeah. Daniel, I know that I could go on for a long time. We're going to continue this, I'm sure, in person. More podcasts, more movies coming up. Can't wait. By the way, you better change your phone number because I just, I'm certain, get the guy who did Spider-Verse. And a lot of idiots are thinking, with all due respect, you know, my movie needs that. No, your movie is nowhere near that, but good luck. And so you're going to get those calls, which I always loved, the directors who would come in and say, I need somebody who can do something like this. And I'd say, but you're like, this is a teen rom-com. That's not contemporary. Yeah, but this should be cool. I'm sorry for alerting you to something you already know. They're all going to want your coolness. Pick wisely, my friend. Okay, thanks so much. Daniel, thank you. I'll see you okay. next time. Are you going to be in Ghent at the World Soundtrack Awards this year? Uh, I think I might be. Yeah, I don't know yet. But Great. Yeah, I think I might. I'm going to do so something there on uh, on the Saturday. I'm going to do a live thing with a video game composer who used to be in okay Arcade Fire. Kind of interesting combo. Oh, Owen Pallet. It's actually it Colin Stetson. Oh, Colin Stetson. He... He's amazing. Like his, oh. his there's a great thing. His oh, score to Hereditary is fucking brilliant. Like I think he's a fantastic artist as well. I love the score. The menu, he's really good. I really like his work. Yeah, the menu crushed me. We tracked him down. I'm going to do a thing with an audience. And Colin, please come if you can. Oh yeah, um, I've seen him live before. He's he's he, that, that, again. He's a good. He's a great performer. Oh, good. Musician. That's great to know because I'm go I'm on my learning curve with Colin, but uh, dig the music. Okay. He can anyhow he can do some crazy circular breathing. Uh oh, I think we just figured out how we're going to start the evening. Yeah, that'll be fun. That's like Dizzy Gillespie, dude. Take care. Be safe. Okay. Looks like you're still in Bermondsey. Yeah, I'm still there. So. We'll talk uh, soon. Okay. All right. Can't wait to. Chat I really today. appreciate it. Right, it's great the time. talking. Great talking. Okay. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you.